you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. For those who I haven't met, my name is Bobby, and I serve on staff here at Redeemer. And this morning, we are going to begin a a short four-week series called Hope in God's Word out of Psalm 119. So Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and so I'll only work through one unit, which are eight verses long, and today we're in Gimel, that's verses 17 through 24 out of Psalm 119. Now, to truly hope in God's Word, we first need to learn how to read, interpret, and apply God's Word. And you know, I'm thankful for women like Jen Wilkins who help simplify Bible literacy for people like me. Bible literacy is a must for everyone, not just for the scholar, the counselor, the professor, the seminary student, or the, or the pastor. It's vital that we all know how to read God's Word, which is described in the Bible as a sword of the Spirit. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so since God's Word is likened to a sword, then it's vital we know how to wield our swords, or else we run the risk of doing great harm. Wielding a sharp object is dangerous, and it can be damaging to self and to others if you don't know how to accurately handle it. And you certainly cannot hope in a sword to protect your life if you don't know how to use it. If you haven't handled the sword, the Word of God, and become familiar with its weight and its glory, its sharpness, its ability to pierce and to cut, if you haven't practiced and learned from an able teacher, then let me encourage you to find someone. We all need able teachers that have gone before us. And so who is teaching you how to be Bible literate? Who is teaching you to be a skillful swordsman or woman? Just look around this room. Redeemer is blessed with many able teachers. So seek them out. Attend women's reflections or men's advanced or ask your community group leader or an elder to help you. They'd be happy to walk through um, teaching you how to read the Bible. So don't dismiss this responsibility because you can't accurately hope in something you can't properly read, interpret, and apply. And like I said, you may end up hurting yourself and others. So the Lord has given all of us a serious responsibility in stewarding His Word, and so we must be sure we know how to wield our swords. Real quick, I'm going to give a bare-bones generalization on how to study the Bible because it would be odd for me to say all that and not follow up with some sort of teaching. So first, if we're going to hope in God's word, we must know the purpose of what we are reading. We must ask ourselves, how does this passage fit into the overarching narrative of the Bible? Where does this passage land in God's big picture? Is this passage highlighting on creation, the fall, redemption, or restoration? You see, each of the 66 books in the Bible, although different in genre and authorship, Share in the story of redemptive history. And being mindful of God's meta-narrative will position us to know and relate to God and our neighbors in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And second, we need perspective. It's important to know certain things such as who wrote it, when was it written, to whom was it written, and what style was it written, and why was it written. In other words, before we can understand it today, we must understand it back then. Jen Wilkins, in her book, Woman of the Word, which is for men too, by the way, says, before you can hear it with your ears, you must hear it with theirs. 
And that's the work of getting context. If we don't put in the work to answering these questions, then the Bible could provide a false hope. Just because the Bible is infallible, which means without error, doesn't mean that we are. In fact, that's what it confirms. Therefore, if God's word is going to offer any sort of accurate application for our lives today in providing hope, obedience, rebuke, or encouragement, then we must accurately read, interpret, and apply the text. Lastly, as our psalm this morning will show us, we must pray for the Spirit's elimination as we read God's word. Now, structuring a sermon from the psalms was a bit laborious for me. Uh, This may be because when the psalmist is pouring his heart and emotions out to God, it can be difficult to follow along because he jumps from one emotion to the next, and I'm just trying to keep up and make sense of it all. But you know, the, the raw emotion expressed in the psalms are what make them so appealing to folks. You know, the heartfelt cries, songs, and prayers to God can look messy, random, and sporadic at times, but they're relatable, aren't they? Now, out of all the psalms available, I'm not sure why Greg chose 119. You see, whenever Augustine, who was a church father, taught the psalms, he would skip 119 because he said, and I quote, As often as I began to reflect upon it, it always exceeded the utmost stretch of my powers. So if Augustine wasn't confident in his ability, then either Greg has, one, an uncanny expectation upon Mark and I, who will be preaching this series, or two, he just wants to laugh at our expense. I'm thinking the latter. But if, if I'll preach again next week, and then Mark will, Mark will do cleanup. So a little background. Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. And being that there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, each of the 22 units in the psalm begin with the next successive letter in the alphabet. Furthermore, within each unit, the first word of each verse begins with that same letter. Now, of course, you can't see the alphabetical order unless you're reading it in Hebrew, which I assume... Most of us in here are not. But let's dive in. Psalm 119, 17 through 24 says, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent accursed ones, who wander from your commandments, take away from me scorn and content, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's pray. Father, we are your servants. Help us to behold wondrous things from your word. Unveil our eyes and do not hide your commandments from us, for we want to meditate on your words. Please make them our delight. Let the scriptures be our counsel as we follow your Son and firmly plant us in your word of truth. In Christ's name, amen. I don't have a, a neat three-point sermon for you all this time this morning, so as you're listening, I'm simply going to work through this passage line by line. Verse 17, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. From this opening verse, we get a glimpse into how the speaker views himself in relation to God. He is a servant. This title of servant addresses his covenant bond with the Lord. He and God are committed to one another. 
And although the servant's faithfulness is imperfect, which is why he asked God to be generous and deal bountifully with him, he can still rest assured in God's faithfulness to him. Now this idea of servanthood leads me into dog and cat theology. Some of you may be familiar with this analogy, but for those who aren't, let me briefly explain why dogs are the proverbial pets over cats. So dogs, they typically look to the human owner and think, hey, you know, this person feeds me, pets me, he plays with me, he shelters me. Heck, he even cleans up after my mess. He must be my master. He must be God. I should probably be loyal to him, love him, and obey him when he tells me to stay or to come or to go. He loves me so well, it's the least that I could do. Cats, on the other hand, think, hey, you know, this person feeds me, shelters me, pets me, plays with me, and cleans up after my mess. Am I some sort of God? I must be God to be served this good. Therefore, I don't need to love and obey my human. After all, he exists to serve me. We play on my time. He scratches my back on my time. I come or I go on my time. Don't give me your commands like I'm a dog, just eager to obey. And now, folks, this is why all dogs go to heaven and cats go to hell, but that's another sermon. Sorry, Jake. But you see, the traits of cats, you exist to serve me, instead of I exist to serve and love you, are all too often commonly held beliefs that may not be openly stated, but are implied. And we see this in how some folks relate to God's word, how they approach the Bible, that God exists to serve me, that God's word is supposed to be about me and make me feel good. It's about my happiness. But our opening verse smashes that belief. The psalmist understands that he does not exist to be served by God, although he graciously is. Our very existence is dependent upon God to be gracious to us in countless ways. But ultimately, humanity exists to serve and glorify God, which turns out to be our greatest joy. And so, to love God and to enjoy Him forever is the chief of end of man, because there's nothing better. Now, an unbeliever may object, thinking it narcissistic of God to demand that we serve and worship Him, but that's cat theology, which is idolatry. Sometimes I hear from unbelievers, if that's the God you follow, then no thanks. I'm not going to worship our narcissistic God who demands to be glorified and worshipped. And to that, I always gently ask, don't you see the irony? But I want to be charitable to my unbelieving friends. And so I must remind myself and all of us that we can all naturally relate. Naturally, we all want to take the crown from the Lord's head and place it upon our own because that's how deep our sinful pride runs. But it should be a humbling reminder that the King of kings and the Lord of lords first came to us as a servant of servants, but with authority. Jesus authoritatively spoke regarding himself that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, that doesn't sound so egotistical, now does it? You're telling me that the master and creator of the world has become a servant for the world. All to make a way for reconciliation. Yes. The psalmist who humbly identifies as the Lord's servant, eager to do God's will according to God's word, prays in verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. In order to keep God's word, we must rightfully understand it. But let's be honest. Some parts of scripture 
can be difficult to comprehend. Divine illumination unveils or uncovers our eyes to Scripture's wonders. That's one of the Spirit's roles. He illuminates. He sheds light on Scripture to help us rightly understand, believe, and apply divine truth. Now understand, I'm not saying that Scripture is unclear. In fact, one of the marks of Scripture is its clarity. This means that a simple cursory reading of Scripture can be understood. But the psalmist is pointing to the heart. He's asking the Lord to open the eyes of his heart. He wants God's word, which is the sword of the Spirit, to pierce and to expose what's going on inside of his heart. That's where God's word, with the help of the Spirit, does its transforming work. Of course, unbelievers need this unveiling, this eye-opening to come to saving faith, because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But what about believers who have the Holy Spirit? Is continued illumination needed for them too? Paul says yes when he prays for the Ephesian church. A people already possessing the Spirit, mind you. Yet he prays that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. This continual renewing of the mind and softening of the heart to the truth of God's word is needed, which is why the psalmist petitions as he reads, Lord, open my eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. And you know, it's truly remarkable. This same gift is available to us today. To any who will ask, Lord, open my eyes to what I am reading. So what about you? Do you approach God's word with humility? Knowing that you're dependent upon the Spirit to wipe the sleep from your eyes in order to behold the wonders of salvation. I'll confess that oftentimes I neglect to have this heart posture before reading God's word. I don't ask often enough, Lord, open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. It's not a willful neglect of mine, but it's a neglect nonetheless, which reveals a sort of self-dependent pride that I can figure it out on my own. I don't ask often enough for God to fill me with wisdom and understanding, to teach me to open my eyes to the riches of his word, which must mean I'm trusting in myself. My intellect, my learning, my capabilities to understand divine revelation without the help of the Spirit. It would be a dangerous thing to pick up God's Word and think, meh, I've been to seminary, so I've learned all that I need to know about this verse. Or, I've preached on this passage before, so I doubt I'll be able to apply anything new to the church. Or I've read this book countless times, so this will only be a refresher. It's easy to detect the pride in these examples. But let me add a personal one. Let me tell you about a conversation I had with my wife earlier in the year, which exposed how I was relating to God's Word. Now, it's foolish, so if you want an example of what not to do, then listen up. Okay, so one evening we were discussing some commentaries I wanted to buy, When she stopped to ask me, Bobby, I see you reading all these books, including your Bible, but do you ever pause to study it? And I'm like, yeah, that's why I want to buy these commentaries, to help me in my study. And she goes, I understand, but those are other people's work. 
Do you ever just study the Bible for itself? And I respond nonchalantly, yeah, I did that in seminary. And as soon as those words left my mouth, I knew it was a foot-in-the-mouth moment. And her face said it all. Oh, so you've graduated from studying the Bible. Of course, it's a shameful thing to say because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so all that to say, we should never be too proud when it comes to thinking we thoroughly know God's Word because we don't hardly know it as we should. If we did, then Lord willing, Christian maturity would blossom. Sanctification, obedience to the great commandment to love thy neighbor and the great commission to make disciples would be exploding in fruitfulness. And indeed, we see fruitfulness. So uh, we see sanctification and disciple-making going on here at Redeemer and across the globe. So that's not a knock, but more an exhortation to faithful steadfastness because there are always more wonders to behold from God's Word. There's always more convicting truths to pierce our hearts in fresh ways. Always more means of grace to grow in Christ-likeness and always more opportunities for obedience to love thy neighbor with acts of justice and mercy and to reach the unreached with the gospel as we saw in that video. In our study and meditation of God's word, we must keep in mind that it's impossible to exhaust the knowledge of God and our beholding of God. It's an unspeakable mercy to know a little and at the same time to know that it is only a little. But thankfully, we have all of eternity to know the Lord better, and he does not withhold himself. So the psalmist prays so passionately for this unveiling of the eyes because he's a sojourner in a foreign land, and he needs direction, guidance, and counsel, as he says in verse 19. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Do you all ever feel like a sojourner on earth? Do you live and plan your life like this earth is not home? Do you ever pause to think about that your 80 years or so to pass through this earth is a blink of an eye in light of eternity? Do you ever slow down to consider what you do with your 80 years not only affects your eternity, but those you interact with? I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as to the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, either to immortal horrors, meaning hell, or everlasting splendors, meaning heaven. And then he continues, All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. And so what he's suggesting each of us to consider is, am I making disciples? Am I pointing people to Christ and reflecting Christ in my daily interactions? As Christian pilgrims in a foreign land, this earth is not our home. We're simply passing through. But all too often our vision is blurred because this earthly place is visibly beautiful, tangible, and God's blessings get a hold of our hearts instead of the giver of those blessings. Therefore, to avoid distraction from lesser loves, we need a vision of our destination, heaven, and we must behold and delight in the object of our worship, Jesus. God's word is, 
received by faith delivers this hope. Which is why the psalmist shouts, hide not your commandments from me. Foreign travelers like our psalmist need direction and counsel. God's word shows this weary traveler the path that leads to life. So we ask God to brightly illuminate his word to guide his steps as he journeys to help him see where he's going. The servant is prone to trip and fall. You know, the world still battles for his affections, sin still entices. So he continues with verse 20. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. What is your initial reaction to that verse? My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Have you ever been consumed with longing for God's rules? For God's reign? Maybe you did when you witnessed an injustice taking place. Or maybe you did after committing a grievous sin and deep conviction swept through your heart. Or maybe you did when you were telling the gospel to your lost friend and you wanted so desperately for him or her to believe. But what I want to know is, how do we get from the past tense language of, I did long, to the present tense language of, I am longing? The psalmist's soul is consumed with longing for God's rules at all times. He sees the brokenness of sin, which makes him long all the more for God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. Notice this intense longing is an answer to prayer. Remember previously he had asked God to open his eyes and to not hide his commandments from him? And the servant responds with a kind of longing someone would have when their eyes have indeed been opened to God's word. There is an affectionate desire, a hunger and thirst for more. The psalmist got a nibble, a taste of God's word. Now he's craving for more at all times, like an unquenchable thirst. And there's good news for someone whose thirst is unquenchable. The object of our desire, the word made flesh, the living waters, is an endless spring. God's word never gets old, stale, irrelevant, or crusty. No matter the season or how long you drink from the well, it never runs dry. But there's another reason why the psalmist's soul is consumed with longing for God's word. The last half of our unit, verses 21 through 24, tell us, You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plying against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So the psalmist longs for God's word because it's his only reliable counsel in a hostile world. Anyone who walks with Jesus will be despised, scorned, and troubled by those who do not. That's just part of counting the cost that Jesus warned his would-be disciples about since all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The psalmist feels this unjust hatred toward him, which is why he pleads to God, take away from me scorn and content, for I have kept your testimonies. He's saying, because I belong to you, God, the proud, the insolent, they're scorning me and I feel their content. Now to scorn someone is to believe that they are worthless or shameful. And content is a feeling of dislike, a despising of, or even hatred. But why would he be experiencing these things? 
Is this an internal feeling of shame and self-hatred? Or is he experiencing this pressure from outsiders? As I search the commentaries, it appears that because of the surrounding context, the scorn and content are coming from outsiders. This is why God rebukes the prideful and insolent. They're accursed by God because princes, which is another way of saying powerful people, continue to sit and plot against God's servant. But why are they doing this? Because the servant is being bold in his proclamation of God's word. Now how do I know? Because of context. This is a continual theme of Psalm 119. He's feeling animosity from outsiders because he's talking about his delight in the gospel. Do you ever keep what you delight in to yourself by not talking about it? No, of course not, you don't. We naturally talk about what we delight in, right? If you've ever had a conversation with me for like five seconds, you know that I delight in deer hunting. There you go, Rick. My conversations just naturally go there. And it's because it's intentional. We like to talk about what we delight in. But pray for me because I want to imitate the psalmist whose conversations are naturally directed to his delight in God's word. God's testimonies are his delight, so he speaks about them often and openly, but people aren't liking it. This is why people are applying against them. Redeemer, are there any folks in your life who are hostile toward you because of your faith? Or who may have taken offense at what you believe, though no fault of your own? If not, then it's worth considering if you're keeping your faith to yourself. Are you being tight-lipped about the hope that is in you? Do you find talking about your faith in Jesus taboo, socially awkward, or uncomfortable? Sometimes I do. And I'm supposed to be an aspiring church planner guy. But a couple months ago, I realized how hard it was for me to bring up yet again another gospel conversation with my dad. And so instead of speaking for myself, I put on the American Gospel documentary, and I let the heavy-hitting theologians do my batting. And now nothing's wrong with that. The gospel was clearly proclaimed through the film, but afterwards, I was intimidated to further the conversation. I was intimidated to ask follow-up questions, to get his thoughts and opinions on what was shared. I shied away from my role as a minister of reconciliation. Now, fortunately, I'm able to keep conversation going because he's my dad, but sharing the gospel is intimidating. We don't know how people will respond. You could be ridiculed or mocked or perhaps treated unfairly. Those are all realistic fears. But those fears are exactly what the insolent want. Those mockers who scorn you for your faith do so because they want to silence your witness. That's the whole point of persecution, to silence you. Now why would they want to do that? Because if we speak up, someone could come to saving faith. But if we're silent, no one will. Romans 10 and countless others, faith comes through hearing the word of God. Have you ever heard the phrase, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words? It's not certain, but some attribute that quote to the Catholic missionary Francis of Assisi. But regardless of who coined it, it's a faulty statement and it's exactly what the enemy wants because it prevents people from hearing the good news and how to be redeemed and reconciled to the Savior. Living a life of Christian virtues alone won't convict anyone of sin and righteousness and judgment. 
They may think you're an upright citizen, a good person, but that will be the extent of your witness and ultimately a missed opportunity because you're witnessing to self and not to the Lord. Your life, your good works, your acts of justice and mercy toward your neighbor are meant to complement and affirm the gospel-proclaiming words that you speak. This displays an authentic Christian witness. This is what it means to have a holistic ministry. You know, so people will ponder, hey, I think he actually believes what he's saying because look at that. He's walking it out. His practice matches his belief. Now, in fancy theological terms, that means his orthopraxy matches his orthodoxy. So what could our orthopraxy look like here in Springfield, Missouri? Maybe it's going to the clubs to build relationships with women trapped in sex trafficking. And yes, it's here in Springfield. It's not just in faraway places like Cambodia, Nepal, and the Philippines. It's happening in our backyards. So if you're interested, my wife can connect you to a local organization. Or maybe it's it looks like volunteering at the Victory Mission to disciple men who are hungry, and I mean hungry for God's word and need to be plugged into a local church. Maybe it's standing outside a Planned Parenthood center and starting up a compassionate, gospel-centered conversation with a hurting mother who's about to abort her child. Or maybe it's adopting. Maybe it's attending generation of kings to understand the racial tensions felt by those who are not like you actively listening to know their story, learning from them, and maybe, just maybe, you'll win over some ears to hear about a Savior who reconciles people from all tribes, ethnicities, and nations to himself in one family under the household of God. Maybe it's as simple as befriending your neighbor, having them over for dinner, starting a genuine friendship, and sharing about why you delight in Christ so much. The way you live won't bring persecution. Loving your neighbor as yourself will not get you thrown in prison, criticized, beaten, or killed. But what you say very much could. You know why? Because words are powerful. Proverbs warns that death and life are in the power of the tongue. In Nick Ripkin's book, The Insanity of Obedience, Nick says, How can we pray for persecution to stop when the only way to stop it is by refusing to proclaim Christ? Let that sink in. How can we pray for persecution to stop when the only way to stop it is by refusing to proclaim Christ? Remember how I said that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The psalmist has pleaded with God, Don't hide your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. And remember, God answered that prayer, which means the servant has been using his sword. He's been practicing and meditating on God's word, which has become his delight. So much so that God's word is in his mouth and it's on the tip of his tongue and his persecutors want to shut him up. Listen, every day there is a battle with sin raging within our hearts and the more time you spend meditating on God's word, the more you practice with your sword for the day of battle, then the quicker you'll be to draw the sword from your lips. Speaking the scriptures for yourself and for your hearers. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak and the courage to remain steadfast even while princes sit plying against you. Verse 23. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Like I mentioned before, the word princess was used in the Old Testament as a wide-ranging word to mean powerful people. 
these people of influence and status sit plying against the servant of God. However, notice he's, he's not meditating on them. He's not anxiously thinking, oh gosh, I wonder what they're saying and thinking of me. Will, they, will this tarnish my reputation? Will I be thrown in prison? No, he's not, even, he's not even worried about himself. The servant meditates on God's word. He focuses his thoughts on what lasts and to what is truly worth fearing, the Lord. This little scorn and content he's facing, he's facing is nothing compared to the scorn and content Christ bore on his behalf on the cross. He understands the ultimate burden of his sin has been removed and nailed to the cross on which Christ died. And to think all that remains for him and the children of God is the lighter cross of reproach and content, and this for mere men, which is simply a badge of our discipleship. So this is our present state as sojourners. And what keeps a traveler going is his constant vision of looking forward. He can't help but to hope in God's word because it's there that he finds the present realities flipped on its head. The, Christ of, the cross of Christ will do that. It flips realities. It flips the present realities to eternal realities. And so that's what he focuses on. Internal realities revealed from God's word. The insolent, the proud in verse 21 are the cursed ones because divine scorn and content remain on them. And it's not man who does the scorning this time. It's God Almighty. God is their rebuker for they have rejected the Son in their pride, rejected His word for their own, and set up for themselves their own commandments according to their folly. Now in contrast, our psalmist has kept God's testimonies. Verse 22. Not perfectly, of course. Only Jesus could do that. But he has made the Lord's testimonies his delight. So much so that they have become his counselors. Verse 24. And so it is my hope and prayer that we as a church will continue to increase our delight in God's word. And that we make it our counselor in all that we do and say. 